So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We are, we've just done a very short series here called Gospel Fluency. And the aim of this sermon series is, um, is for you and I to become so fluent in our understanding and knowledge of what the gospel is that we would know how to apply it to our life and we know how to live it out in our life. And one of the things I, I've just found myself, or at least the circles, I Christian circles I've been in, is how many Christians I've known who, who know very little about the gospel, therefore it's very difficult for them to know what it looks like to live out the gospel in their marriage or in their parenting or in their friendships or in their bitterness or in their suffering or just name the situation. And so the aim of this series is that you and I would come to a place where we'd have a fuller, a greater knowledge and understanding of the gospel. And then we can move from our head to our heart now to our hands and feet of living out the gospel. And so um, I, I want to do just a quick recap of where we've been and then launch off to this last piece of um, living out the gospel. Next week we're starting a new sermon series called Marriage and Family. Um, just talking about God's vision for marriage and family um, just for our homes. Because moms, dads, we're leaving a legacy to our kids for the way that our marriage is and that the way that we raise them. And so I think that this is a, a profoundly important sermon series for you and I to know God's vision um, because we're raising kids and, and, and I want to see my kids loving and serving Jesus. Um, so recap of this sermon series. The, the first week we started with this question and the question was very simple. What is the gospel? And I framed it up this way. If someone came to you, a friend, um, a neighbor came to you who does not know Jesus and, and asked you, what is the gospel? Would you be able to answer that confidently? Would you be able to answer that concisely without rambling for the next 20 minutes and, and concisely? And so week one, we talked about what the gospel is, and we um, framed it up with this summary statement. Now, this summary statement in no way um, encaptures the fullness of the gospel, what we have in the gospel. It's just meant to be a summary statement. It's meant to be a banner in which many different things that we have in the gospel flies over. And so the summary statement that we gave is this. The gospel is, hold on, don't, don't put it up there. Put it, put it out. We're doing challenge, challenge. I want to make sure some of y'all are listening. The gospel is that you and I are more flawed. Or, or we'll take sinful. That's, but technically it's flawed. So half a point. Um, the gospel is that you and I are more and than we could have ever dared imagined. Now get this. This, is, this may be one of the most important lines in the whole entire summary. Yet at the very same moment, at the very same moment, at the same moment that you're really flawed and you're really sinful, how sinful? More than you could ever imagine. Yet at the very same moment, we are more and more accepted in Christ Jesus than we could 
ever have dared hope. The gospel is that we are more flawed, more sinful than we could have ever dared imagine, yet at the very same moment we are more loved and more accepted in Christ Jesus than we could have ever dared hope. And, and, and some of you might be going, okay, like, where, 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 where'd you get this phrase? I got it from two places. First, a guy named Tim Keller. Um, that's, that's not a bad place to get certain, certain things from. This is his statement. But I think that he just simply rips this off of Romans 3, 23 and 24. Romans 3, 23 and 24 puts it this way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you get that first statement in there. We are sinful. We are flawed. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. That word justified literally means made right. We are justified. You're in the courtroom. You're guilty. Jesus steps in, moves you out of the seat, puts you in the crowd, and Jesus says, it's on me. I'm going to justify you. I'm going to make you right. You committed all the crimes. Get out of the seat. I'm putting myself in there in your place. We are justified by his grace. As a gift. You didn't, you didn't do anything for it. You didn't earn it. As a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is a summary statement of the gospel. And it's so beautiful. And I hope that your heart was overwhelmed. Just thinking about that. And then last week. We talked about applying the gospel. We talked about applying the promises of the gospel. Because again, one of the things that I found, again, just maybe it's just the Christian circles I'm in and everyone else is doing things the right way. But one of the things that I found is that for most people, the promise that they have in the gospel is the salvation. That the promise that they have in the gospel, the, the, let me put it this way, the only promise they have in the gospel is, well, I prayed this prayer and so now I'm going to heaven. That's the promise I have in the gospel. When I die, I'm going to heaven because of Jesus because I prayed that prayer in seventh grade at camp. Now, I don't want to undermine that promise. That is a profound promise that makes death something I look forward to. My mortality is okay with me because I know where I'm going. And it's going to be way better. So when I have my funeral, and if you come to it, I beg of you to praise the Lord and lift your hands and worship because I'm with Jesus. I'm in a way better place than you. I just am. So that is a profound promise. But, but I don't want you to miss this. There is a treasure chest of promises in Scripture that we have in the gospel And I've just found that most people almost never pull those treasured promises out and apply them to their life. And so they they walk around living almost exactly like everyone else lives and, and having the same exact attitude and the same exact outlook 
as everyone else does because the only promise that you have that they don't is salvation in heaven. And, and, and what you don't realize is that you have profound promises in the gospel that ought to completely revolutionize your life, completely change your life, that would make you so profoundly different. And so um, I, I just want to meditate one more time on this one verse because if you don't have this memorized, this needs to be your application to today's sermon. Right here, memorize this verse because you're going to need it. And people who do not have this memorized, people who do not have this promise, Christians that do not have this promise, many of them walk away from their faith forever because they don't know they have this. Romans 8, 28, it says this. And we know, we, that's speaking of believers, this is not for unbelievers. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purposes. All things, all things, He works together for good. All things. What is all things here? (laughs) Well, one, it's all things. But Paul has a particular all things in mind here. And if we had time, we'd go back about eight verses and hear Paul talk about the fact you and I are going to suffer. You and I are going to suffer deeply. You're going to get cancer. Well, maybe not you, but I promise you that someone in your life you love dearly will get cancer, probably in the next five years. It just just seems to happen to me every five years, someone I love deeply gets cancer. And some of them don't make it. Some of you, you're going to get a chronic illness. It's just, it, for, it's going to be with you till the day you die. Some of you, your children are just going to walk away from you. Even worse, they're just going to walk away from the Lord. Some of you, you're, many of you, you're going to lose a parent. You're going to lose a parent. Some of you, many of you, have already had a miscarriage. Or two, or three. Many of you, many of you are going to suffer, I bet, in the next two years, deeply. And God says, all of that, circle, circle it all, I use it for good. Let me ask you a really simple question. Think of the tragedies. Think of the two-year-old dying. What seems worse is your own two-year-old dying. Think of the cancer. Think of the sickness. Think of all the disasters that have happened and very well may happen. Let me ask you, do you believe God will use that for good? Do you you believe that verse? We got got, got one profound yes. You you laugh, but I'm really serious with you. Do you believe? A head nod will do, friends. But let me ask you, do you believe that? Because if you do, it changes everything. Let me be clear on what it changes. Doesn't mean you don't weep when you get the phone call of tragedy. It doesn't mean that you are overwhelmed with exhaustion because your spouse is it, it's just, they're not following Christ. And I'm just, you know, I'm in a 
It's happened to me several weeks ago. A wife calls me. My, my, just my husband. I just, I don't want to be in this marriage. But I know that if I'm going to walk in the gospel, I need to be in this marriage. This doesn't mean that there's not heartache in those situations. It doesn't mean you're not on your knees just begging and pleading God to take it away as tears are streaming down your face. It doesn't mean that, that you are free from any kind of sorrow. It doesn't mean that. It just means that when the sorrow comes and the tears don't stop and you are overwhelmed with heartache, it means that you can walk in it all at the same time with joy. And hope. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, I believe it's verse 10. I am always sorrowful. Always. Yet I rejoice. Paul had so much heartache in his life. He just it's not a day that I'm not filled with sorrow. This is constant. But yet that's with joy. Because, why? Because of Romans 8, 28. I know God's going to use this for good. I can't see it. I may never ever see it. But God's going to use it for good. That's just one promise. If you keep reading the rest of Romans 8, you're going to get overwhelmed with how many promises we are given in Romans 8. And so I hope that you will be like my wife. She said to me, Sunday afternoon, she said, you know what? I think that we, we need to just start writing down the promises of God and just put them everywhere in our house. Put them in the kids' rooms, in that kids' room, in that kids' room. Put it in the kitchen here. Put it up on the wall here. Put it in our, our, our bedroom, even in the bathroom, even in the closet. But everywhere. So that you and I, and even better, our kids walk around just constantly seeing the promises of God because they're going to need them. That intro took way too long, but that's what happens when I start talking about Romans 8, 28. Today, I want to talk about what does it look like for you and I to live out the gospel. I want to make a distinction here that I didn't really make before. Last week, we talked about applying the gospel. Today, I want to talk about living out the gospel. And the picture I want to give you is is last week, we talked about um, uh, just applying, applying the promises that God has given to us. So like receiving them. I want you to make it this picture of your arms are open and you are applying them to your life. You're holding them tight. Today, I want you to take the picture and have the picture of releasing, of living. What does it look like for you to live out tomorrow morning when you get out of bed when you get in the car, when the first words off of your mouth are uttered to your spouse or your children, what does it look like for you to live out the gospel? And here's the first thing I want you to see is that to live out the gospel, it primarily looks relational. To live out the gospel is to live it out relationally. That's the primary way you and I live out the gospel. You and someone else. This, this shouldn't surprise us because if you take our summary statement of the gospel, we, kind of a relational term there, we are more flawed, more sinful than we could have ever dared imagine. Yet at the very same moment, we are more loved, relational word, more accepted, uh, relational word, in Christ Jesus. 
relationship. That's what makes the gospel so profound. It's not as if God's up in heaven going, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to like throw down some blessings to you. I'm just going to drop them out. Like I'm going to sprinkle them like fairy dust, like blessings for you, blessing for you. I forgive you. I forgive you. No, 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 no. What does he do? I'm going to give you my son, relational. I'm going to give you my son. He's going to pay the debt you owe. He's going to die for you. So it's profoundly relational. To live out the gospel, and, and, I, and I just want to correct something. A lot of times when we think about living out the gospel, oh, it's a quiet time that I have with God. Me up to heaven. It's, it's reading the Bible. It's, it's in prayer. Hopefully that's part of your daily, daily, daily disciplines. But primarily the way we live out the gospel is not so much vertical as much as it's horizontal. It's me to you. It's you to me. You got coworkers, you got neighbors, you got kids, you got a spouse, you got parents, you got people you just don't like or don't like you. Yep, apply the gospel to them. So, what does this look like? What does it look like for us to live out the gospel? It's primarily relational. And we could go to all different places in Scripture to see what this looks like. And we could point out probably a hundred different ways to live out the gospel because half of the New Testament is about you and I living out the gospel. Instead, I want to take you to two verses. Well, let's be honest, it's, it's, it's a passage. But in Philippians 2, We're going to look namely at two verses, but these verses are going to be like a banner, like a, like a, like in a phrase, what it looks like for you and I to live the gospel. And and this phrase is, is so massive, but yet it's so clear and concise that you and I, I think if we can just look to this phrase, or I'm going to call it a mindset, if we can look and have this mindset, what will naturally happen is the hundred different ways for you to live out the gospel relationally will just flow out of you, just come out of this one thing if you get it. So Philippians 2, and I want to give you three words, one and a half, I suppose, because one word and then a hyphenated word. I don't know if it's technically one word if it's hyphenated. But I think of three words when it comes to living out the gospel. And we're going to see it in this text. And all three words are important. You cannot have two out of the three. Here's what it looks like for you to live out the gospel. Joyous. Don't miss this joy part. We ought to be the most joyous people in the world. Joyous. Not joy-ish. Joyous. Joyous, sacrificial love. Not joyous love, joyous, sacrificial love. Not sacrificial love, joyous, sacrificial love. So let's see how that plays out in Philippians 2. Let me pray for us as we dive into this text. Father, thank you for the gospel. We bless you for the gospel. We, we bless you that in the gospel you have blessed us 10 billion times more. Thank you that in the gospel we are loved and we are accepted. Thank you that in the gospel we are forgiven. Thank you that in the gospel we can repent of our sin and every single time you forgive us. And it's all because your son Jesus died for us. Father, teach us how to live out the gospel with the people in our life that we interact with every day. 
Show us from your word what it looks like. And Father, be greatly glorified. And everyone said, Amen. And so before I read this, I wanted to make one more significant statement. I don't just want us to see what it looks like for us to live out the gospel. What I want us to see is that any relationship in which you apply the gospel, God is glorified. Where the gospel is applied, God is glorified. I just made it rhyme, friends. Praise the Lord. Where the gospel is applied, And and here's the reason why that should be important to you. Do you know how your friends that don't know Jesus get saved? Do you want to know how really immature Christians become mature Christians? It's when they see how glorious God is. You know how they see how glorious God is? Nine times out of ten, it's through you. And so this is, this is profoundly important because where the gospel is applied, God is glorified. We make God look gloriously great and we need people in our lives to see that God is up to something amazing. So here we go. What does it look like for us to live out the gospel? I'm going to take this phrase by phrase, verse by verse. We're going to namely um, just be in verse 3 and verse 4. Do nothing... From selfish ambition or conceit. Now, I just want to start with this first phrase. And I find it interesting that um, we are not giving, given this, this simple line in the sand of living out the gospel is, is, is this. Do, do this. It seems as if the Apostle Paul wants to draw a big outside line and say, do not do this. Living out the gospel is so important, it's so significant, I don't want just to tell you what it looks like, I want us to be very clear what it doesn't look like. I want to make it very clear where the line is, and we don't even flirt with that line, we don't even cross over that line. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. I want us to talk about this word selfish, because as I was kind of meditating on it and thinking about it, I can't help but wonder how often we, or maybe it's just me, how, how we play with this word. And I just want to define our terms here real quick. What is selfishness? Is selfishness simply, I want to do this, I'm going to do this? Not quite. First thing we need to understand is selfishness, it's a relational term, right? It's always implying you and an other or others. So so it's not simply, I want to do this, so I'm going to do this. It's, I want to do this, so we're, we're going to do this. The other really important thing that I think that we need to, to distinct is is not to separate, this is the danger we fall into, not to separate selfish ambition with my rights and and my entitlement. Let me play out a scenario for you that, that may or may not have happened in my life in the past, I don't know, month or two, several times. Um, So, uh, every once in a while, I'll work from home 
specifically in the morning. I start my work day well before the kids wake up and, and before Melissa wakes up. And um, it's worth noting that there's just kind of this um, agreement between Melissa and I that, that when I work from home, even if it's in the morning, that, that she kind of maintains the primary responsibility over the kids. And so she's not shouting down or shouting up, hey, could you do this or could you do that? You know, just, just kind of an understanding of I, I want to still get work done here, but yet have a level of presentness if you will. And so there's this understanding, I'll work from home, but hey, may I still be able to do my work? Now, every now and again, praise the Lord, this doesn't happen every morning, probably one, two, three mornings out of the week, we have a two-year-old that likes to wake up before his wake-up time. Um, He's still in a crib, and we have found that if he wakes up any time before 6.30 a.m., The key is to get him just a little bit of milk in a sippy cup and go give it to him. And so typically what happens is he's not a continuous crier. He's not like, wah, 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 wah. And he can use some words, just chooses not to, and uses his vocal cords instead. And so it sounds more like a goat just screaming every every like 20 seconds or so. So it's like a, ah, and then just what you wanted to hear. Um, I'm going to give it to you one more time because I have to deal with it. And, and 20 seconds later, ah, and, and it's way worse than that. Um, so this happens from time to time. Before 6.30, and I'm working from home. Melissa's still sleeping. And one of the things I found is that he does this at such a high pitch, but yet only at the frequency of about 20 seconds, that it takes a good 60 seconds for Melissa to kind of wake up out of her sleep. Oh, I gotta go get, gotta go get the milk here. Um, so, I have a choice. I'm doing church work, mind you. <laughs> praying for you. In the spirit. Can I get an amen? No. No. <laughs> that was the proper way to live out the gospel. I like that. No, you may not. No. So, so I literally, I have a decision to make. It will take me about 20 seconds to go and get the milk myself and go give it to her. But frankly, that's, technically, it's not my job. At least in that moment. Hillary, calm down. Our worship leaders. So I, I, I literally have a decision to make. And technically... It's her job, and sometimes she does because I've got my headphones on and, and I turn it up really loud. No. Um, that has never happened. But I have a decision to make. If I sit there and go, well, it's kind of my right. It's got, like, I'm entitled. This is my work time. Is it selfish of me to sit there? Or am I entitled to that? What do you guys think? So, Hillary's convinced it's selfish. It's selfish. See, I, I think that's the thing about our selfishness that we need to be, a care of, be careful of, especially with us. You know, we're Americans. I got, I got my rights. 
I've got my rights. I've got my entitlement. No, no, no. I'm a manager over you. No, no, no. I, like the, the Bible says I'm the head of the household. No, no, no. The Bible says you're my children. I'm your parent. So because I said so. Or we feel like we have our rights in relationships with. No, no, no. I'm the older one. No, 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 no. They're the parents. You're the child. And so we operate from this entitlement Perspective, And so I want us to be very, very careful that we do not separate being selfish and doing what we want uh, uh, to the other degree of, well, I just have my rights and I have entitlement. No, 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 no. That's selfish. That is selfish ambition for you to leverage your Power and authority, even if it was earned, even if the title goes with it, it's selfish ambition. Even if you're entitled, or even if it's your right. Even if you are the husband, even if you are the parent, even if you are the manager, even if you are morally superior. And he says, do nothing. From selfish ambition. So in, in, what, in what case is it okay for you to exercise your entitlement and, 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 and your authority? What, like, give me a scenario. Do nothing. So the answer is zero, none. I, I think it's worth noting because I know that there's some smart people in here going, but what if I am the manager and what if that idea they have that they want to do is just absolutely ridiculous? Or what if I'm in this marriage and, and God has put me in this place of, of overseeing and leading our home and my wife wants to do this and I just know that wisdom says I, don't, I just don't think so. Like, what do I do? Do I just, you know, all right, I'm not going to be selfish. You do it. Remember, selfish ambition is leveraging you for you. And so husbands, maybe the proper response is not, well, sweetie, I'm going to go ahead and do that headship thing and just say yes and no on this one. But rather, maybe it's, hey, sweetie, um, I think it would be wise for us to pray through about this. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm concerned about us. Amen? Not me, us. And friends, if it's the color that you're going to paint the wall or the desk that you're going to use, just men, yes, yes and amen. Yeah, okay, you want to do that pink? All right, okay. <laughs> or maybe it's in the workplace. And, and, and again, it's, it's not you saying to those who you are managing, hey, that's a ridiculous idea, and here's why we shouldn't do it. But rather it's a, hey, from my experience, you know, I've seen this, and, and you need to understand I'm, I, I want to look out what's best for the team. And here's why I think that this is best for the team, best for the company, rather than, hey, this is why I think we should do this, because um, I'm the boss and you're not. And by the way, I need this just as much as you with your children, like, if, if they ask you 30 times, why, why, why? Like, say, because I said so. But if it's the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time, you tell them why. Well, because of this, or, or be, because of that. Because when you start using the phrase, because I said so, I hate to break this to you. You maybe not see this way, but this is true. You're, when your kids look at you, they look at how God works. Especially you dads. 
Whether you believe that or not, dads, the way that you act is a model of our Heavenly Father. And we can make some really crummy models of our Heavenly Father when we say, because I told you so, son or daughter. Maybe you wouldn't do it with that kind of authority. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. By the way, this word conceit, it's a picture of what kind of relationship you have when you apply this. This word conceit, it literally means empty glory. And maybe, maybe you didn't realize this, but when you start treating people with selfish ambition, the relationship becomes a shell of a relationship. It becomes very empty, lacking any glory whether it be your kids or your marriage. Okay. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So so we're told, don't do this. Okay, want to live out the gospel relationally? Don't do this. Instead, do this. But in humility... You want to live out the gospel? Humility. Now, we've got to define our terms on this one. How would you define humility? I looked it up in dictionary.com, and and, and, and the um, definition was somewhere along these lines of a lowly state, or thinking of yourself lowly. I disagree with that, like, profoundly. What that produces is what I would call false humility, Have you ever met that person that cannot receive a compliment? Oh, yeah. Like, I I hope that I'm not like this, but I know I used to be like this. Like, I didn't know what to say when someone said, hey, that was a great sermon. You know my typical response? Well, I want to be humble. No, that wasn't great. That wasn't good at all. Hey, man, I I thought that, man, I thought that was a really nice thing you did. Oh, no, that, that, mm, no, that, that was nothing. Oh, no, no, don't worry about it. You know what you are? You're not humble. Frankly, you're really annoying is what you are. You know this. You know it. You're like, like, can't you just say thanks? I used to be this way In the name of Jesus, I hope I'm not in this way. If I ever give you that kind of response, just look at me and go, yeah, you're annoying. I mean, you said it, Zach. So what is humility? What what is humility? Well, I think what's helpful is I, I really do think that the best definition of humility is the very next phrase that comes out. But in humility, let's there's there's no throwaway words in here. This is very important. But in humility, count others. What's that word? In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility is not a denying of your strengths. It is not an undermining of your strengths. It's not an undermining of your position, of your authority. We all have some sort of authority in this room. Maybe some more than others, but we all have some sort of giftings. We all have some sort of strengths. We all have some sort of authority. And friends, humility is not you underplaying that authority Humility in this context is taking your authority, taking your gifts, taking your power. Listen to this. 
taking your entitlement, taking your position, and grabbing them and putting them subordinate to everyone else. It's taking yourself and counting them as more significant. Not better, more significant. That's humility. To look at the others and go, okay, you're more, I'm, I'm going to treat you as if you're more significant. You, you may be my employee. I'm going to treat you as if you're more significant than me. You are my children who are driving me nuts. I'm going to treat you more significantly. You're the neighbor I can't stand. Or let's just put it, frame it up this way. You're my mother-in-law or my father-in-law. You're my brother. You're my sister. You're, you're, you're that person that I, frankly, I just don't like naturally. You're that person who sinned against me and you're probably still going to sin against me. And I'm going to count you as more significant. So friends, may we not treat these verses as if they're only to be applied to the people who will apply them back to you. These are for everyone. Count them as more significant. Think about your neighbor. Do you treat them more significantly? Do you count them as more significant? Think about your spouse. Do you look at them and and count them as more significant? Your children? Your parents? Is there anybody in your life who's sinned against you in the past couple weeks? You count them as more significant? How about that boss of yours? How about the Starbucks baristas who are getting you your drink or you're checking out in QFC? Do you, do you count them as more significant? That's why I say joyous, sacrificial love. This is sacrifice, is it not? Because I know each and every one of us are going... But, but, but they're not. They're, they're not. Like, I'm supposed to count them as more significant when morally they're just frankly horrible. Yeah. Now, I love the next verse, and we'll get ready to land the plane here. Because this last verse, it turns this into something really practical. What we've been talking about is a mindset. What we've been talking about is how we ought to think. We ought to think in such a way as, as, as not being selfish, but we are to think in such a way as we look around and go, I'm going to count you as more significant, more significant, more significant. All of you are more significant than me. I'm going to count you as that. It's a mindset. So, so how do we take this from our mind to now living this out today and tomorrow? Well, Paul says this in verse Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. One thing worth noting, I think it's helpful to point out that it it, it doesn't merely say, hey, the only interest you are to care about is the others. Just forget yourself. Doesn't say that. It says, let us look not only to our own. So, so there, there is nothing wrong with you looking to your own interests. And so here's a way I think that this plays out in a healthy way. And, and, and sorry for all my marriage metaphors here, but I think that that's probably the most needed place you, you, you can have this for the next 50, 60, 70 years of your life. 
So what, what might this look like? So um, when we look at our week ahead, um, we'll probably do that today, and we'll kind of look at the week beyond that. Um, what happens is Melissa and myself, we share the kind of interests that we have, the things that we want to do. And so Melissa, for example, um, said this to me uh, about a week and a half ago. She said, hey, uh, I got a friend, their birthday is on Monday, and um, would it be okay if on Tuesday I left at six and, and just spent the evening out there, and I'll do the same. I'll do, hey, uh, you know, I got something going on Wednesday night. Would it be okay if I'm gone at six and I'll, I'll be home right around 10 or so? What am I doing? I'm sharing my interests. But do, do you see how Melissa did it? I don't know where we learned this. We picked this up somewhere. There's a difference between Melissa saying to me, hey, my friend's got a birthday. I'm going to be gone on Tuesday, so I'll be out of here at 6. You got the kids? There's a difference between me saying, hey, I got something Wednesday, so I'm going to be gone at 6. All right? There's a difference between that and saying, hey, would you mind? Is, Is it okay? You know what I'm doing there? I'm saying, hey, sweetie, this is an interest I have, but I want to look out for your interest. Will you speak into this? So, so we all have interests, but I, I think that, that how we frame these up, we frame it up in a way where we share our interests but yet look to theirs. And so I love this. It's very practical. Paul simply says, take this mindset, and here's how I want you to apply it. Look to the interests of others. Don't wait. Look. It's an active word. Don't wait for your wife to say, hey, I'd love to do this. Don't wait for your kids to say, hey, dad, hey, mom. Don't wait for your coworker to approach you. Don't wait for your parents or your friend or your neighbor. Look, 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 look. Always be on the lookout for how you can serve them and meet their interests. And so I just want to give you one question. One question, maybe you've heard it before because I've shared it in the context of marriage. It is the most powerful question that, 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 I, that I have asked and Melissa has asked in our marriage. We try and ask this question as frequent as possible, try to do it on a daily basis. It has changed the trajectory of our marriage. And we've started to ask this question of our kids and tried to expand it. And so this is not just a question for your wife or your husband, though I hope you would do that today. It's a question for your coworker, for your neighbor, for everyone. And this is what it would may look like for you to look out for the interests of others. It's a very simple question, and it goes something like this. What can I do to help? You're all looking at me blank stares. I thought it was way more profound than that. (laughs) What can I do to help? You're driving home. Call your spouse. Hey, sweetie, um, anything I can do to help? I'm, I'm five minutes from home. Anything I can do to help? Or it's a coworker. You come beside them. Hey, uh, this week, is there anything I can do to help? Or you go to a family gathering. People are cooking in the kitchen, or the kitchen's a disaster after dinner. Hey, is there anything I can do to help? At that point, you probably don't need to ask. Just look around, all right? It's your neighbor. Is there anything I can do to help? It's someone who's just frustrating you. Is there anything I can do to help? That question, that is a profound way for you to live out the gospel. 
What can I do to help? Can you imagine what your marriage would look like if, let's just start with, because let's start with her. What it would look like if your wife just started asking you that question, husbands? Ladies, don't worry. He'd be, I'm a man, I ain't mean nothing. But, but what that would do, like, wow, she's clearly looking out for my interests. Wives, how incredible would that be if your husband said to you, especially at the opportune moments when, 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 when you just got done cooking dinner and the dishes are crazy, not after the dishes have been cleaned up, like what it would look like if you just said, hey, what can I do to help? Or how about with your kids? <gasps> Even your five-year-old, hey, is there anything I can do to help, Seth? Is there anything I can do? Is there anything you wanted to do? Or with your coworker, with your neighbor? What would it look like, friends? It, it, it would look like God is pretty awesome. That you're willing to stoop to that level. And I know what everyone is thinking. Maybe not everyone. But maybe some of you are thinking, but what if I do it and they don't do it back? What if I do it for the next week and they don't do it back? What if I do it with that coworker and they're going to just make fun of me? What if I do it with my neighbor and they're just going to give me that glare? What if I do it with my kids or what if I do it with my spouse? What, what if I do it and I'm just not going to, I'm just, just not going to have the same reception? Like, like, is this a week thing? Is this a 21 day challenge? Like what, like, like 21 day fix? Like what's going on here? Like, what, like, okay, I'll do it. But at what point do I stop doing? We get our answer. Have this mindset among yourself, namely this mindset of I'm going to count everyone as better than myself. I'm going to look to the interests of others and not just my own. Have this mindset among yourself, which is yours in Christ, who, though he, that's Christ, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count. So notice there's a drawing on words here. Count others more significant. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So at what point did Jesus say, okay, I'm going to do this for them, but only up to this point because some of them are just driving me crazy and they're not going to respond. He laid it all down. I commend you to pursue those relationships that will never be life-giving to you, but God has put you in them. I'm not saying go find relationships where people can undermine you and disrespectful and, and sin against you. I'm not saying you don't build boundaries in certain relationships. I'm just saying some of you will be in certain relationships, whether it's with your kids, maybe it's with your spouse, or maybe it's with your in-laws, or maybe it's with your own parents, and God's put you in those relationships, and it's going to be a lifetime of you saying, what can I do to serve you? And they are going to look at you and tell you how and never ask that question again for you. And I would say, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Because that's what he did for you and I. 
So we call this living the gospel. This is not living morally. This is living the gospel. This is looking to what Christ has done for me, for us, and going, okay, I'm going to do it to others. And I'll end with this because some of you may rightly go, okay, I heard the sacrificial part loud and clear. I heard the love part loud and clear. I heard nothing about joy. If you scroll down, verse 17 Paul is following this train of thought. In fact, Paul is applying verse 3 and verse 4 to himself, and he's applying it to a guy named Timothy, and he's applying it to a guy named Epaphroditus and, and saying how they lived it out. In verse 17, Paul says this, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. In other words, he's saying, even if I am going to pour myself out, even if I am going to count you as more significant, even if I am going to sacrifice to the point of beyond sacrifice, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Guys, here's the reason why I think joy is so important. Because if it's just sacrificial love, it looks a lot like legalism. If it's just sacrificial love, it looks a lot like you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. If it's just sacrificial love, it looks like it's simply work. Hebrews 13, 2. For the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. You know what joy does? You know what joy does when you serve people with joy sacrificially? It makes the gospel glorious. If you just do it just sacrificial, if you just do it love, you just do it because, well, Zach said so, so I better apply this because my wife was in service and is looking for me to do that. If you just do this out of obedience, it lacks some luster, does it not? But when you do it with joy, joy in what? Hopefully joy in the gospel. But when you do this with joy, you are bringing the gospel to life. You're going... I can do this with joy because of the joy that I have in Christ. Even if you're not going to do it back to me. Joyous, sacrificial love. May that be a banner that flies over your life. May the question, what can I do to serve you, just fall off your lips continually. Let's pray. Father, we can only do this because of what you've done for us. Father, help us to walk in these ways. And Father, as we just sing this last song of worship, be our vision. May that be a song for our week. Lord, would you be our vision? Lord, would you show us how I can count others better than myself? God, would you help me to joyous and sacrificially love those around me? God, may we sing this song as a response to you before we go. We pray these things and everyone said, Amen.